Hey, hey, hey. I uh, wanted to go a little bit off format for this round and start with a brief post-production intro. We started working on ABA Ultimate Showdown way back in the summer of 2018, primarily due to the discord around the topic Dr. Tiger and Dr. Gaia Megamine discussed today. The magnitude of these two consummate professionals discussing this topic with the utmost respect, professionalism, and even friendliness is not lost on us. This is a bit of a full circle moment, so thanks for being here for it. I'm going to get through their bios, a bit of housekeeping, and then we'll go right to the debate. This podcast has been brought to you by Graham Behavior Services. It's a super fun place to work. Like you, we're always trying to come up with new ways to reach and help more people, so check us out online, and if you're ever in New Jersey, give us a ring and we'll hang out. I want to start by introducing the pro side of the debate, debating the motion that the goal of the functional assessment is to identify a function that will inform treatment. Dr. Jeffrey Tiger. Dr. Tiger hails from South Florida. He completed his bachelor's degree at the University of Florida, his master's and PhD degrees at the University of Kansas, and his postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He was a professor of psychology at Louisiana State University and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee before joining Marquette in 2018. He currently serves on the board of editors for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, and he received the 2012 B.F. Skinner New Researcher Award from Division 25 of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Tiger's supportive wife, Shannon, and five awesome children enjoy tubing around Green Lake, cooking s'mores over the bonfire, cheering for the Packers, and rapping the lyrics to Hamilton. All right, flipping on over, representing the con side of the debate, that functional assessments may not need to identify a function to inform effective treatment, is Dr. Mashid Gaia Megami. Dr. Gaia Megami's work over the past 15 years has focused on ways to improve the overall effectiveness, feasibility, and acceptability of behavior analytic procedures and practice. Her research has focused on effective and acceptable ways to build a repertoire of tolerance for interruptions to reinforcement that rely on differential reinforcement of skills, including appropriate and functional communication, toleration, and cooperation in complex social contexts. Dr. Gaia Megami received a Master of Applied Disability Studies with an ABA specialization from Brock University, Canada, and a PhD in Behavior Analysis from Western New England University under the supervision of Dr. Hanley. She subsequently served as an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Pacific, advising master's level students in ABA before joining FTF Behavioral Consulting as the Clinical Director and Senior Consultant. All right, so I know you've been wondering, and yes, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Graham Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds count for continuing education credits. Great content and CEs, it's basically the perfect combination. And it also supports us in developing and continuing the publication of this podcast, so thank you for your support, and thanks to Florencia for getting these up ridiculously quickly. This episode will count for 1.5 general continuing education hours. In order to earn them, hop on over to our website, grahambehaviorservices.com backslash showdown and enter the first code word, central, as in central time zone. Definition, of the greatest importance, principle or essential. There is a such thing as central Jersey, C-E-N-T-R-A-L, central. 
While you're there, check out our show notes. Katina did an amazing job putting together a reference list chock full of incredible resources in APA format nonetheless. Thanks to Dr. G and Dr. Tiger for providing resources both before and during recording. Okay, last thing before we get to the best part. Typically, we reference terminology and operational definitions of what Dr. Tiger and Dr. G will be discussing. But while I was writing it all out, I realized that um, we already have that recorded. So head on over to our precursor episode way back from 2019. I think it's our maybe second published episode. It really thoroughly describes a bit of the history of the functional behavior assessment, the functional analysis, and the practical functional assessment. If any of what Dr. Tiger and Dr. G discuss is confusing, that episode will help clear things up a bit. Keep in mind, it's from 2019, so it's a bit behind in the research, but for the purpose of this episode, it defines everything pretty clearly, and then our show notes also offer some more recent publications. We recorded this podcast remotely, so thanks for your patience if the audio varies a little bit between all of us. All right, without further ado, enjoy this debate. Hello, and welcome to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse to advance the field of behavior analysis. I'm your host, Megan Miller, back with round 14, and two guests whose work you're probably definitely very familiar with. We're going to be taking a deep dive into a topic that not only will pique our intellectual interest, but also kind of inform your practical treatment. Um, So I'm really excited about this. Our motion for today is the goal of a functional assessment is to identify a function that will inform treatment. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Mashid Gayamegami and Dr. Jeffrey Tiger joining us. Both of you are such dynamic speakers and your collective research has had such an enormous impact on our field. I really can't wait for this debate to unfold. So some specifics, just like any good football game, we'll start with a coin toss to determine speaking order. Uh, Each of you will have equal opportunities to speak, and um, we'll have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions, both from each other and then from us. We have more on the debate format we use in our show notes. We even made a whole introductory episode that goes into more detail, detail, so check that out if you're a debate geek like me. Uh, I think it's fun. All right. So I want to emphasize our most important modification, though, to uh, to any traditional debate format. At the end, there's really neither a winner nor a loser. Our ultimate goal of the debate is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. We're aiming to disseminate the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect. Okay, so coin toss time. All right, the winner of this will get to choose whether to speak first or second. So head goes to Dr. Tiger representing the pro side. Tails goes to Dr. G representing the con side. So here we go. Okay, and the winner is heads. So Dr. Tiger, you can choose to speak first or second. I will defer to Dr. G. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Um. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll go as a, I guess the con side. So the the motion is the goal of a functional assessment is to identify a function that will inform treatment. And uh, I guess I would say that traditionally um, or historically that perhaps that's where we've started. That the goal was to identify a function, and it was, uh, you know, I want to recognize that it was a groundbreaking uh, stepping stone in our field, like to kind of identify. Uh, variables that control behavior that prior to that were sort of unexplained and and 
uh, may be puzzling for everybody, especially, you know, severe self-injury. Just looking at that and going, you know, we don't have a way of explaining these behaviors and then to come around and say, actually, we can with some uh, simple uh, functional relations, we're able to con uh, show some control over these behaviors. But I guess I would say at this point, you know, 30 plus years later, I would disagree that the goal of a functional assessment is to identify a function. Um, I guess as a, a, an applied uh, researcher, as a, as a practitioner, the goal of a functional assessment for me is to design and identify an effective treatment. So taking, I guess, a um, pragmatism as our uh, operating assumption here and going with effective action is what we're looking for and, and looking at, okay, so did the function model or is the function model giving us that effective action? And then my answer would be uh, that perhaps then it's not sufficient. Maybe it's necessary, it was necessary, maybe it's still necessary for us to at least um, be able to say that the functional reinforcers uh, are in this contingency or in this context that we've identified. But ultimately what we want is a context that can lead to effective treatment. Um, and really looking at effectiveness uh, as opposed to, you know, the initial successes of treatment and efficacy, but we'll get more into that um, later. But so I would say that my goal, the starting point for me is, um, do we have effective action? Do we have effective treatment? Thanks, Dr. G. Now we move on to Dr. Tiger, who will give the opening remarks representing the pro side. Dr. Tiger, you're going to speak. The motion again is that the goal of a functional assessment is to identify a function that will inform treatment. All right, take it away. All right, and then let me just start, Megan, by thanking you so much for inviting me to be here and, and Dr. G as well. Um, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to get to discuss this topic um, and, and to do so in uh, such a, a collaborative manner is is ultimately we're all behavior analysts and and hopefully we're all trying to do what's best for our clients and to be able to provide the best intervention the best treatment for them and help them live ultimately the the highest quality of lives that they and their families possibly can and we should be critically analyzing all that we do in order to be able to provide those the the best services that we can as a field um, and you know I, I came into this as somebody that had no particular dog in the race um, it was, you know, I, I got into this as, as trying to be a neutral arbiter, basically, who was able to look at data and analyze them and um, talk to people about the way I was analyzing them. So um, in, in terms of, of the, the pro side of this statement is ultimately whenever we're working with somebody with um, challenging behavior and particularly severe challenging behavior, ultimately the, the value of what we do is going to be judged by how effective are we able to implement treatment or what is the effectiveness and efficacy of our treatment. And throughout the history of our field, and especially the early history of our field as applied behavior analysts, there was a large emphasis on, on the treatment side um, of, of our interventions. And could we arrange treatments that arrange really strong contingencies, ideally of positive reinforcement, but sometimes also of, of extinction or, or other punitive procedures with you know, the, the primary focus being on behavior change. And that the big evolution in our field was the notion that sometimes, essentially that sometimes these treatments were effective and sometimes they weren't. And would we be able to identify characteristics of the individual, their environment or their histories that helped us better predict what treatments would and would not be effective on behalf of those clients. 
Um, and that's really where functional analyses were developed. And the notion of being able to identify a function was the notion that we'd be better at prescribing treatments if we were able to identify what were the reinforcers maintaining that behavior. Because if we uh, identified or made guesses or hypotheses that turned out to be wrong, um, it seemed to increase the likelihood in the best case scenario that our treatments would be ineffective. And in certain circumstances that our treatments might actually be contraindicated or could make those situations worse. So ultimately the goal of conducting any assessment is to be able to more effectively predict what's going to be an effective treatment. But what makes something specifically a functional analysis or a functional assessment is trying to, in advance of uh, prescribing a treatment, is to identify what are the variables in the environment of which behavior is a function. What are the events in the environment in which behavior increases? What are the events in the environment in which behavior decreases? And to use that information then to ultimately prescribe ourselves or, or to prescribe our clients a more effective intervention. So ultimately the goal is to arrive at effective intervention, but the means by which we get there, at least through the process of a functional analysis or a functional assessment, is to try and identify what those contingencies are before we start putting treatment in place. Okay, I'm gonna interrupt again. The next segment of our debate is typically the crossfire where the debaters ask each other questions followed by the rebuttal where the debaters give a lengthier response to the other side. Dr. G and Dr. Tiger expertly combine these two sections incredibly efficiently. So enjoy this discussion. I guess uh, uh, for me, as I was listening to Dr. Tiger, was a point of, I guess, agreement is, uh, I hope, that we both agree we need to have an understanding of uh, why a behavior happens before we go into treatment. So if we go back to our seven dimensions, if you look at the analysis dimension or analytical dimension. Um, when we look at Beowulf and Risley's definition of what it means to do an analysis of behavior, what they're asking for is that we should be able to demonstrate a believable demonstration that we can turn problem behavior on and off. They actually exactly talk about it that way, that you're able to turn it on and off. And so, if you're able to do that, then you can say that you have functional control over this behavior. You have an understanding over this behavior. And I would agree that, you know, to move away from behavior modification, to kind of go in blindly and, and put in certain variables and, and not know whether you're going to help or hurt the situation or kind of disregard the why an individual is engaging in a behavior, we certainly need to start first with an ability to influence that behavior uh, and be able to turn it on and off. And I think both of these assessment models achieve that. We're able to turn problem behavior on, but I would say that perhaps the PFA um, assessment or the synthesized reinforcement uh, contingency also cares um, you know, as much about turning the behavior off. And turning the behavior off during the interval in which you believe that you have delivered those reinforcers. Um, and if you have that kind of understanding, then you can say you have a context um, that has the relevant variables in it. I think that the disagreement comes from the extent to which those additional variables you may have in a synthesized contingency um, are, are problematic or not. So I would agree with Dr. Tiger, with Jeff, that 
we absolutely should have an understanding. We should do an analysis. We should demonstrate control over behavior before we proceed. Um, and that's what will inform ultimately an effective treatment. Um, but I guess the, the part of the departure comes where the isolated sort of function uh, model is really looking to pinpoint the exact variable. So we're looking at sort of a micro analysis and we're talking about some generic um, uh, constructs that we've come up with, right? We say tangible, attention, escape. And we're looking to say, okay, it's this class of uh, variables uh, that's really important. And when we look at data that suggests uh, having a functional analysis results in a more effective treatment, those data are really looking at um, whether the, you know, the relevant variables that would turn problem behavior on and off were in the equation or not. We don't have data that suggests if you have additional things added that that will actually hurt the situation. In fact, we have data suggesting otherwise, that in treatment, if additional variables are added, it will enhance your treatment, right? So we see we have a lot of uh, demonstrations starting in 1997 by Piazza and colleagues that showed, you know, just because you identified escape, for example, as the functional reinforcer in treatment, that may not be enough. Um, so I think what I would like to see as a field for us to kind of maybe you know, keep moving, keep moving uh, through this, this uh, evolution of, of our understanding and say, function is necessary, but it's not sufficient if we want to get to uh, the end goal of effective treatment, right? We might be able to turn prob problem behavior off um, in an FR1, you know, very tightly controlled context in, in sort of an efficacious type of demonstration. But as soon as we want to move beyond that and, and sort of move the needle towards effective outcomes, we end up adding all the other variables in. Even individuals that do isolated uh, you know, conditions for their assessment end up adding those variables in. So coming back to sort of you know, Jeff's own argument of what's the point of doing an assessment if your treatment ends up looking the same, right? So my, my question would be, what's the point of going through a much more extensive assessment that may potentially also be unsafe because we are um, isolating these variables and sometimes we do see much higher rates of problem behavior, um, especially in the escape condition. And then do all that, which takes a little bit more time and it sort of doesn't match the ecology very well. It changes the contextual interaction style of parents, for example, right? Because a lot of times we see parents kind of deliver these things together only to then go to treatment and add them all back in. I guess I see more risk there than I see in, let's just start with synthesis because we know if we can turn problem behavior on and off, we know that we have, uh, if you really care about the function, we know it's in there and let's just go to treatment. And then in a therapeutically healthy context, you can always tease apart and teach specific mans. And we have demonstrations of that as well, that just because you taught you know, an omnibus man doesn't mean you can't tease it apart later and say, okay, let's teach um, some mans for these generic uh, consequences. And if, for example, attention doesn't matter, then the child doesn't man for attention. But if we taught a child to man for attention, that's not a bad thing either. That's called prevention because we know that that, you know, behavior is sensitive to that kind of contingency. So for me, it's really about, you know, not just what's necessary, but what's sufficient to get us to that end goal. And as we go there, 
what's the safest, most trauma assumed, most ecologically sort of uh, valid way of getting there. And, and again, coming back to, you know, for me, it's not about realism. It's not about what's true. What's the true function. I feel like if we go down that path, you know, we can argue here about the extent to which we're able to really truly isolate functions and say for sure this is escape only and i think that that will get us nowhere what we both seem to be focused on is sort of a pragmatic approach to we're here to help people what's the best way to do that um and what's the risk in um saying yeah you're right i don't know i don't know the extent to which this is a main effect or an interactive effect or some of these things are just you want to call it arbitrary or you know competing reinforces let's put it in there because if i can turn problem behavior on and off I have met the criteria that Skinner put out and Beowulf and Risley put out that said, you got to understand behavior and control it in order to say you can do something with it. In some ways, I feel like this is going to be a, a poor debate because there are so many things that we seem to agree on with each other. So um, there, there, there are a few things in there that I wanted to respond to and, and highlight. So one of them is um, I do make the distinction between what we do in assessments and how we should respond to that in prescribing our treatments as, as being two different things. So even though I tend to favor, at least at the initial stages, conducting more isolated contingency analyses, I completely agree with you. And I think we're looking at the same data to come to the conclusion that there are benefits of not isolating your, your contingencies during treatment that there are significant benefits of combining them together, especially in the treatment of escape-maintained problem behavior. Um, we we kind of agreed in advance we were going to try and stick more to the assessment side on this, but I feel like we could probably have a really good, uh, fully in agreement discussion as it relates to those treatment variables. Um, so trying to stick more to the assessment side, I think there's two parts to it, is the things that I... I'll just say me. I'll try not to, to speak in the royal ear or speak broadly beyond myself. The things that I tend to look for in my assessments in order to help predict what is likely to be an effective treatment path are those that have been shown in the literature to be effective predictors. So there have been things that people have looked for that have shown that that doesn't help us predict what effective treatment is. So we know, for example, that that's simply like age and diagnosis of the client, like they're their information, they're important, but they don't ultimately tell you what's gonna be effective. We know the topography of response, whether it's aggression or self-injury or property destruction, doesn't necessarily tell you what form of intervention is going to be effective. The reason that we are, are as a field, perhaps, or maybe again, just me, more focused on these individualized consequences or, or these individualized reinforcement contingencies is because of the literature that's shown us those are things that serve as predictor variables. So, so even if we don't think about it in terms of this is the true function, I, I agree with you that's kind of a, a wonky term and a wonky concept. But another way of thinking about it is that an individual who responds during this condition or this test or this assessment is more likely to be sensitive to this intervention, that it really is a, a, a predictor test. And, and part of that is showing sensitivity under this particular context to this particular source of reinforcement lets us know more about what interventions are gonna be effective. Now, I know in listening to these discussions, I know I tend to, and I feel like many of us tend to um, filter the discussions through who are the clientele that I work with? 
how would I imagine this looking with the families that I work with? Um, and I think one of the things that we've not done a really good job as a field is articulating when do we need to conduct an assessment? For what clients do we need to conduct an assessment? Um, I tend to work with older kids, so usually in the adolescent age, specifically who are engaging in chronic forms of aggression or self-injury or property destruction. Um, you know, I, I don't work in a traditional early intervention environment, for example. So, you know, if, if I was working in an early intervention program with maybe a three or four or five-year-old, we started engaging in aggressive behavior, you know, is my first go-to in that situation, oh, I need to conduct a functional analysis right away. Or am I gonna be more focused on, well, we know about some of the conditions under which problem behavior develops. I can simply just put a treatment in place. I, you know, it's my environment. So I tend to know what the contingencies are there. I can analyze those and I can make changes. I don't need to do a full functional analysis. Um, you know, I've, I've got uh, twin two-year-olds at home and my little boy is, has taken to biting my toes lately whenever I sit on the couch. I, it's, it's unpleasant and I'm gonna fix that, but I don't need to do a full functional analysis of toe biting at this stage. Um, you know, when you, one of the things you mentioned is I, in the is essentially the cost in terms of the time of the assessment. Part of it is cost of time, but part of it is what's the cost of other experiences that they may be able to get, and and how does that influence the efficacy of the treatment they're they're ultimately going to get? So oftentimes I'll get phone calls from parents of children who are two, three, four years old, for example, that maybe are engaging in some forms of problem behavior. I generally don't take those cases on. I will generally refer those cases to other early intervention providers because it's likely the case that their early teaching of skills, like, like how to you know, ask for attention, how to ask for toys, how to ask you know, uh, for folks to play with you, are going to be the conditions that eliminate that problem behavior anyway. That uh, trying to bring them into a situation where we're gonna conduct a, a, a lengthier assessment and a very specific treatment of trying to address the conditions that occasion that problem behavior is probably way more than they need and is gonna come at the cost of enrolling in an early intervention program that's gonna take a much more comprehensive approach to teaching them skills. So, so I think part of it is not even what is the assessment we need to conduct, but what are the conditions that lead us to saying we need to conduct an assessment to begin with? And that, in part will tell us what's the level of um, assurance we need before we start implementing treatment. So like I said, you know, if it's my early intervention program and I've got a good sense of the contingencies, I don't need likely before I'm willing to take an educated guess based upon that, what I think the first line of intervention should be. It's more for me the point at which um, the risks are higher of what happens when it goes wrong or the child's already lost access to educational services due to their problem behavior, that there's less cost associated with this kind of more focused version of intervention. Um, that those are the conditions, yeah, sorry. Those are the conditions under which I think conducting a more formal assessment is appropriate. And those are the conditions when if we're going to bother to conduct an assessment, then we should get the most predictive information that we can possible to tailor our intervention specifically to those conditions. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to, you know, I guess the suggestion that um, if we have an older um, client with more severe problem behavior, I, I guess, you know, all of the clients that come 
I guess for our services, especially, you know, in the role that I am right now, or whether they're young or old, typically severe problem behavior is happening to an extent that, you know, the typical sort of um, uh, contingency management type stuff has have not worked, right? And and that's why they're seeking our, our services for, you know, having a functional assessment and treatment in place. Um, but I guess I would say that I, I kind of disagree that if an individual is older and engaging in more severe problem behavior, um, that the need to identify um, an isolated function uh, initially in the assessment is actually higher. Uh, because to me, that actually presents a, a, an even riskier situation, right? You have an older individual who can engage in and severe problem behavior that can cause some real some real injury. So for example, if problem behavior is in fact maintained by escape to tangibles, and now you deliver escape and the individual is kind of sitting in this void with, with nothing to do and all the other EOs are, are percolating. And this is not, you know, just us kind of highlighting this. There are other um, actually, you know, maybe uh, uh, critics of, of the ISCA showing that sometimes in the in the escape condition, we're, we're not able to turn problem behavior off. I would be a lot more worried about that situation for an older individual who can do some real damage, right? And so that, and that's what I mean by in the standard analysis, we take a look at, of course, the control condition and whether problem behavior is perhaps turned off or lower in the control condition, but the control condition usually has all reinforcers, right? There's no escape. It's sort of an omnibus control. It's like, you've got your stuff and you've got attention and there's no demands. What we really need to be looking at is more of a molecular analysis of what's happening when you deliver the reinforcer um, in escape condition, for example, or, or you just deliver attention with no tangibles and exposing an individual that can do some real damage to that kind of context, evoke problem behavior, are we able to turn it off or not? Um, whereas I see the sort of synthesize or, or combined approach as something that says, let's start with first a context in which we can turn problem behavior off and then an identical context of presenting those EOs, turning it on, and then again, being able to turn it off. So this on off thing on sort of a second by second analysis of it is, is even more important for those individuals that are older and, and can you know seriously hurt themselves or others. And of course, and in that situation, I would say, you know, maybe, uh, maybe because I use the word prevention, we kind of thought about, you know, um, younger individuals and in sort of EIBI. But I would say in a situation like that, for many of those learners, for example, who perhaps, um, you know, are even uh, wanting to engage in a particular activity, we may identify uh, in a standard uh, setup that this is like tangible maintained. But for example, many activities, most activities, let's say, you know, tablet seems to be the number one thing these days. If you're engaging in your activity, you're also escaping other demands, right? Like it's, it's kind of inherent in that. And I know we're not getting down the path of like, can you isolate functions or not? But it is important for us to identify that even in the standard analysis, a lot of times EOs are synthesized um, or two EOs are eliminated at the same time. Um, and so I just really see that context as being quite risky and 
uh, I guess we're getting to that question next. My question remains of what's the harm in, in doing a more uh, synthesized combined approach like for those individuals as well? What, what are we worried about uh, that would be the, um, the downside of taking the synthesized approach? All right, so um, let me clarify my, my earlier statement first of not suggesting that because somebody is older and, and potentially more dangerous, that that suggests they need an isolated instead of a synthesized assessment, but rather the, the uh, risk of harm is what necessitates an assessment to begin with. So for me, it was the difference between conducting an assessment or just putting treatment in because the risk of being wrong in that context may be less. Um, so once you're going to conduct an assessment, then the question is what is the most um, efficacious, the most efficient and, and, and ultimately the most useful assessment to use in that context. So um, a, a couple of answers to, to some things that you brought up. So one is, um, uh, is it uh, essentially, um, because in the normative environment, the uh, child may, for example, be uh, escaping schoolwork in order to gain access to their iPad, is it important to know that you know it's just the iPad or it's just escape or or it's the combination of them together. Um, I part of what has informed my thinking on that is a lot of the big summary data, like the epidemiological analysis that Iwata published in 1994, the uh, uh, published results or the uh, review of published data that that um, Hanley and Iwata published, I think it was 2003, and then the the more recent recent Beavers and Iwata one is that the vast majority of functional analyses that have been conducted have not identified those interaction effects that have shown unique sensitivities to one of those sources of reinforcement versus the other, at least during that assessment. And for me, part of the assessment is to gain as much information as I can that may be useful either in identifying the initial information or the initial intervention, or to be able to troubleshoot it as you move forward. And understanding, um, I mean, for me, they're, they're, I always, when it's like, okay, you know, we're looking at data and this I expected to work and it didn't, let's start breaking apart why it didn't work. I'm always going back to the results of that functional analysis of what are the things to which we know serve as reinforcers for this individual. So it's always kind of my, my North Star, my, my guiding light. Now, um, you've, you've brought up the notion, particularly as it relates to escape conditions, that it may be the uh, condition during the functional analysis that when isolated is more likely to result in carryover effects into the reinforcement interval. So you present an academic demand, they engage in problem behavior, the demand is removed, but problem behavior continues. Um, so I agree with you that taking a kind of a deeper or more molecular look into that, into understanding exactly why that is occurring, is probably informative and then looking at if you're synthesizing contingencies, why might that not happen? So the, the notion that I'm, I'm getting from you is that when you remove the, the academic demands, there might still be some carryover effect, but that you're competing with that carryover effect potentially by giving access to some tangibles or attention that strengthens engagement in these alternatives and decreases problem behavior. But we're still not exactly sure why that carryover was there to start with. So what we normally think of is that, you know, uh, essentially the presentation of this aversive event elicited this, uh, not just operant, but like a respondent emotional behavior. Um, so, so you're seeing this kind of frustrative responding and anger that, that carries over. 
or it could be that it's uh, despite the fact that you've removed the task, there's still some uh, discriminative stimuli or conditioned establishing operations present that are associated with escape. So the therapist is still present who is the one giving demand. So we don't like them anymore. So we might continue to respond during the interval. Um, or, you know, if you're not re uh, removing the materials, it may be that the materials are still there. Yes, delivering all these other sources of reinforcement to strengthen a competing behavior may reduce the likelihood of carryover effects, but it doesn't necessarily tell us exactly why that's happening. And in doing so, does it, uh, um, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, confuse why the behavior was happening in the first place? Was it simply to gain access to, uh, you know, an iPad? Was it to gain access to attention? And is it uh, important for us to know that going forward? So one thing you brought up previously was the notion of being proactive in intervention. And it's, it's um, again, I think one of the areas that you and I probably agree on a lot is that based upon all the research that has been conducted of developing treatments based upon functional analyses, we do have a good understanding of why problem behavior develops. So what if every individual who uh, presented with risk factors, so intellectual disabilities, language delays, what if they all received an intervention in which we taught them to, you know, recruit attention in a meaningful way, to recruit access to preferred materials and, and did, you know, kind of widespread man training for all the things that they seem to like in life, included good teaching procedures rich with positive reinforcement so they never developed escape maintained problem behavior to begin with. If we did that as a broad base, would that eliminate the need for most assessments? And the answer to that question, I honestly, you know, I don't have the data to support this one, but I'm guessing the answer is yes. And when I was in graduate school with Greg Hanley, we were involved in a project called the preschool life skills. And that was kind of the fundamental basis of that is could we for um, it was mostly children of typical development at that time, but who were still based upon being in non-maternal childcare considered to be at risk for the development of problem behavior. Could we arrange a curriculum based upon what we knew about, you know, treating more severe forms of problem behavior to prevent the development of things happening later? And it wasn't just teaching those initial requests. It was trying to build tolerance for when those things were unavailable and when they had to wait for things and teaching active waiting skills. Um, so I, I think we're completely in agreement on the value of that. So again, for me, it's when is it right to conduct a functional assessment? It's usually when problem behavior wasn't responsive to those types of interventions or, or when the severity of problem behavior is, is um, causing a loss of access to either their educational environment or, or you know, the quality of their home life. It's, it's that there's gotta be some cost ongoing in their lives to, to make the value of conducting an assessment worthwhile. Um, and, and the last thing I, I think you said in your previous statement was, what's the harm? And I'll say respectfully, I've always felt that what's the harm is the wrong question to ask. Because I feel like for everything we do, there's some cost associated with it. It's the cost of the assessment, it's the cost of time, it's the cost of other experiences. So I feel like for every question we ask, it should be, what's the benefit? And if we can't answer the question of what is the benefit of doing this, then, then we probably shouldn't be doing it yet. So. Thanks, Jeff. Um, yes, there's so much we agree on, which is, which is awesome uh, to see. But I do wanna kind of bring up a, a response though to your um, initial point about 
look, we haven't, we've actually demonstrated that most of the time problem behavior is sensitive to a single reinforcer, um, an isolated contingency. And we're looking at um, some data from the um, uh, review papers of published functional analyses. But I think we can't lose sight of uh, consecutive case series that have come out and have shown that actually, if we look at, because there's a, obviously a, a, you know, a tendency for us to not publish uh, unsuccessful outcomes, right? That's, that's a bit of a problem in almost all fields of science. Um, and, and we are also uh, perhaps uh, susceptible to that. So when, for example, Hagopian et al. looked at, you know, okay, let's take a look at functional analyses. The first sort of assessment we do, what's the likelihood that we will um, have a differentiated analysis? Now we're looking at less than 50% of those analyses actually coming out, right? It's about 47%. And then, so if I take that and say, okay, um, so out of all the ones that are published, it's, it's possible that more than 50% of assessments that were conducted were not published. Um, now we're looking at out of the published ones, uh, I believe, you know, Beaver's uh, 2013 paper kind of um, has about 60% or so of those showing either social positive or social negative uh, sources of reinforcement, because again, we can't rule in automatic reinforcement. Usually we, we just say, you know, uh, we can't rule rule in social, so we're going to assume it's automatic or multiple control. So now we're looking at, if we take that sort of figure, we're looking at basically a third of the time, the, the not the possibility, but the probability of us identifying a singular function is actually a third of the time we identify a single function. That's what the experience is if you're a practitioner um, and, and doing this process. Like those are relevant data for us to look at. And, and, you know, I actually, when I read your paper and said, okay, like, you know, and I've had always talked about practitioners are, are doing things because it, it leads to effective action for them. So if practitioners have struggled to adopt the standard functional analysis for over 30 years, it's not just because they don't know better or they didn't get the training. It's probably also because it hasn't been useful. And, and then when you look at the consecutive case series, you're like, well, you know, if I have to do this assessment, that's pretty difficult to do. And more than 50% of the time, I won't ha be successful. And even then, uh, I'll have like problem behavior happening in every condition. And then I don't know what to do. And I guess I'm like treating everything. And you contrast that to, you know, synthesizing a context and really reliably turning problem behavior on and off, um, you know, I would kind of see that assessment as being able to better predict a treatment you can immediately put in place and address some of these concerns. And I agree with you that we should always ask what's the benefit, but we should absolutely ask what's the harm. And one of the things we looked at when we looked at FCT literature was that we really don't report on you know, the side effects of our treatments, both positive and negative, and, and we should, because if people are waiting two years to get into your you know, clinic, and coming to you, how awesome would it be for you not to just teach that child to uh, ask and tolerate denial of escape, but you also, you know, hit two other classes of reinforcement in the same exact time period. So there's the positive collateral sort of effects of that, but also we should absolutely look at, you know, even if, like you said, it's emotional responding, whatever the case may be, although I would argue that there's some percolating EOs for tangibles that are not delivered. If you can have a context in which you also address the emotions, 
well, heck, we, we got to be a little nicer because, you know, we, we have a bit of an image problem um, and, and this might help us a little bit and make those sort of assessments a little bit of a better fit. I really think the contextual fit um, and the interactional style of just parents and teachers, if, you know, they usually deliver those things and that's what the ecology calls for. If we can bring something in that's not a complete departure from what they were originally doing, but just the rearrangement into a healthier sort of interaction, we'll have better luck. So um, thank you so much for saying that. So so let me um, first clarify this statement about including the review papers by um, Hanley and Iwata and, and, and Beavers and Iwata. Um, the primary one I'll usually actually refer to is the 1994 epidemiological paper. Um, because that really was the first consecutive case series um, paper. So I, I do lean on that one as being a fairly uh, uh, informative uh, in terms of the, the presence or absence of, you know, isolated versus interactive functions. The other ones on a much smaller sample size that I point to are the ones that were published more recently um, from Brian Greer and, and Wayne Fisher. I think combined they, they had about 13 participants between the two of them that involved comparing both isolated and synthesized contingencies um, and found that more often than not, in fact, in every case in which um, they applied that to, the synthesized assessment always identified that, that this constellation of events served as a reinforcer, but that the isolated contingency analysis usually was able to identify one or two of the things within that context that served as a reinforcer where the remainder did not. So it, it um, there are examples of interactive effects in the literature, but the vast majority that have specifically looked for are these isolated versus interactive effects. The majority have shown, and 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 my read on it, and again, we, you know, I, I, is is the the numbers close to like ninety to ninety five percent are are showing not interactive effects. Now, you mentioned the, the incredibly high rate of differentiated outcomes from conducting synthesized assessments. Um, I actually look at that as one of the negatives of the assessment, is that part of the reason you're conducting an assessment is, you know, at the start, you've got all of these treatments that you could potentially put in place. You know, we could start with this giant kitchen sink of, you know, high quality positive reinforcers and, and, and you know, all the great things, part of the deal of conducting the assessment is to help us whittle out what are the critical parts, what is sufficient, what is necessary in order for us to be effective. Um, and, and one of the concerns I have is that the, the ISCA and the PFA is not just the analysis itself. It is a process that begins with an interview, sometimes a descriptive assessment, and then the analysis. And that it seems like so much work is done often on the front end that the analysis is almost always a differentiated outcome. If you know what the answer of something is 100% of the time, you don't need to ask the question because you know what the answer is. So that is one of the things I've, I've often come across in looking at that literature is if you're going to do an assessment, why are you doing the assessment to which you know the answer in advance? Why not just go ahead and put the treatment in place? Because where the real work of the assessment seems to be done in that process is at the interview stage. The interview is where you're ruling things in and ruling things out 
And for the most part, again, this is just my read on the literature. You've conducted many, many more of these than I have. Is that by the time you get to the analysis, it's kind of confirming what you knew. And the other part as I've read is in the instances in which there hasn't been a, a differentiated outcome that shows that these events aren't serving as reinforcers, rather than putting those off to the side and saying, okay, we don't need to worry about those. The process has generally been to synthesize additional things in. So, oh, it wasn't attention intangibles, maybe it's attention tangibles and escape. So again, looking for more interactive processes as opposed to what may just be a simpler answer. Okay, one more uh, interruption from post-production. The next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. Typically, our admin team works with the debaters to create questions for both sides. You'll see Dr. Tiger and Dr. G's efficiency again at play. I formally got one question in, but then they expertly incorporated their answers to the other questions throughout the discussion. They're just awesome. So enjoy this one. All right. So this conversation is so intellectually stimulating. I want to kind of move into asking you some questions um, that we've kind of come up with. So one was uh, directed towards uh, Dr. G. And the question that commonly comes up is that, does the PFA lead to the same treatment regardless of assessment outcomes? And I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think one of the the issues is, you know, we're kind of working within some categories and some uh, language that that obviously historically has has existed, right? So when you look at the the PFA results and we're putting them into these charts for publication, you're kind of going back to, as opposed to writing out a, a one paragraph long like detailed description or or you know. Uh, qualitative details of like, this is the type of attention that was delivered. This is the proximity that, you know, we had to be in and, and oh, we got too close. So we, we got like, you can't write all that, right? So you're kind of writing it and, and actually following the, the model that has been presented over the past 30 years where you're like, well, this was escape to tangible and attention. So when you kind of try and fit it into those generic categories, it all sounds the same. And I agree with with you guys that, yeah, it just it's not it's not detailed enough. It's not uh, it doesn't give me uh, any sort of meaningful distinction between this treatment versus that treatment, which I think um, is why sometimes there's this uh, uh, assumption or perhaps uh, conclusion that we should just go from the interview to. Uh, treatment because assessment didn't tell us anything, but in fact, the assessment is quite uh, prescriptive. Um, we do identify exactly how those um, variables should be presented and combined and and manipulated. And perhaps you know this is sort of the next goal for us as as those that use this model to really sort of capture that initial start of the assessment. And I believe there is. Um, some uh, performance-based discuss that have been published that are more like second-by-second second, uh, data where you see us sort of start with the control condition and putting all those uh, variables that we thought would turn problem behavior off and see, oh, no, we still have some, you know, problem behavior happening. And and then you, you know, start to kind of work through some of the assumptions uh, and some of the statements that were made. Um, and discover that no, in fact, you know, you you need to talk more or talk less, or like I said, get closer, get further away, or the demand needs to be presented this way. And so it gets really 
pretty unique, actually. If I was to kind of really write out uh, what my reinforcement context for each of my clients look like, you kind of need to have an intimate knowledge of that client in order to create it. It's it's not just sort of a kitchen sink model of let's just throw all this stuff in. Uh, but when you come to fit it within the functional analysis literature and, and use those generic categories, you end up sort of coming up with the exact same thing. Now, I think listening to Dr. Tiger, though, we, we keep coming back to this thing of like, how come we're not taking things out? How come we're not investing any time or effort into removing a particular variable that maybe is irrelevant? Um, now, I have done that in the past where it seemed to not evoke problem behavior. For example, we deliver this, you know, uh, the way it was described, we thought, oh, you know, we're gonna deliver demands in sort of a, a pretty one-on-one -on -one type of uh, scenario. And, and I'm like looking at the implement, at the caregivers saying, how come we have no problem behavior? You said he hates math. And then we realized that you kind of need to do like independent math work. So the attention that was delivered through that process of just being right next to the child and telling them what to do and prompting them and error correcting was actually uh, competing with the EO for escape. Um, and so in that scenario, again, I'm interested in first, can I turn it off? Then can I turn it on? And then can I turn it off again, right? It's really, I'm really looking for that second by second sort of um, analysis of behavior and to be comfortable and to be confident that I not only have um, the ability to turn it turn it on, but I can turn it off because I'm looking for a motivating context. I don't think we can get away from, sorry, Jeff, uh, discussing treatment uh, when we discuss assessment because all of our decisions come down to what you and I believe will result in a better uh, treatment design for our client. And I'm really looking at beyond FCT. I am really looking at beyond teaching that one man. I'm looking for a motivational distance that will get me much longer uh, response chain of cooperation and toleration. And when I look at the literature on that and I see we seem to add all these other variables in, I come back to the same question of why did I have to take them out? Why did I have to spend so much time taking them out? So I'm... Um, um... So glad that you uh, discussed some of the complexity and nuance to the assessment process and the things that you're responding to in the process. Because one of the questions you asked uh, a bit back was, um, you know, practitioners who have tried this functional analysis model for 30 plus years and have found it unweighty and difficult to deal with. Um, I am not one that necessarily believes that every behavior analyst should be conducting functional analyses of any type as it relates to problem behavior, um, that we have treated ourselves as, as kind of these generalist experts on all things related to behavior and intervention. Um, and particularly as it relates to treating the more severe cases of problem behavior, I think that's incredibly dangerous. And um, you and I have both worked with folks with problem behavior for, I'm, I'm not gonna give away any of our ages now, but it's, it's uh, more than two decades for just a couple of years, right? Yeah. Just a couple yeah. of years. Um, so I, I you know, we've we've worked with um in different settings, we've worked with different people, we've worked with a lot of clients in doing these things. I've never um felt that the question about how do we get it so every practitioner can conduct a functional analysis is a good one. 
Um, I, I, you know, I would say like if I was a cardiothoracic surgeon and I came up with a new surgical technique, I don't think anyone in the audience is going to say, yeah, but can the school nurse do it? There, there's a certain level of specialization and training and working in severe behavior programs that I think you need, regardless of the assessment methodology that you're describing. And what happens is when we try to move from an incredibly individualized assessment to a more manualized version that you can train somebody in and they can pick it up without a lot of experience and get out and go, is you lose a lot of the nuance. You lose a lot of the conditional discriminations that you're making in the moment in how to respond to make that assessment work that we're probably not even that good into putting into words yet. It's the stuff that you get by your own behavior being shaped through those experiences. Um, and it it highlights, um, I know one of, it. no matter what type of assessment we're doing, there's nuance to it. There's complexity to it that I don't know that anybody's just gonna be able to pick it up and, and, and do it as effectively. Like I'm not going to just go out and run my first PFA and do it nearly as well as you. You've got a lot of experience on me on, on doing those things. Um, and, and it's not only the experience or the assessment that makes it safe. The environment you're working in allows you to do certain things safely and other things less safely. When I was working primarily in children's homes, when I was working primarily in schools, that very much limits the cases to which I think I can safely do an assessment with. When I'm working in a facility, when I'm working in a place that has some more padded space, I'm much more likely to be able to take on and do assessments with kids with more profound forms of like head hitting and head banging because I can create a safe environment. And, and the ability to make those discriminations based upon what's safe and not for each individual also has to play into this in ways that are very complex to try and you know, just come up with like a checklist that people should go through to know whether or not an assessment's appropriate in this space or not. I, I love that you brought this up because um, I agree with you, but I have, I, I, I think we can do better than that. I think as opposed to saying, okay, uh, maybe this is something that we got to sort of um, limit to a certain groups of people, right? So this type of assessment is, is too complex. And so you need really extensive training. And I, I'm not suggesting you don't, I, you know, I definitely would think that anybody uh, wanting to do a PFA should get um, not just the education, but the, you know, training, the hands-on, the coaching required from some, someone who's more of an expert on doing it. But one of my goals, right, with with the um, with our field, like one of my one of my dreams, I guess, and when we wrote the FCT paper, was like, okay, I really want to be a, a key player in human services, and I really think we have the answers um, for all of the the issues that our clients are, you know, going through, skills they need to learn, things they need to be able to tolerate. I I can't think of another profession other than behavior analysts that truly has the solutions. I really think we have a lot to offer. And I really think our science is actually quite flexible and we got to just apply it more flexibly. So, you know, perhaps again, starting point of the functional analysis and that kind of technical microanalytical, um, you know, manipulations where we're trying to, to figure out, is it this variable or that variable is perhaps where we needed to start. Uh, perhaps some work in that area still needs to be done, although 
to be honest, if it was my child, I wouldn't want it to be done on my child. But, you know, um, perhaps there are some questions remaining to answer. But if our goal is to get invited to this table of human services and be able to serve at home, uh, in classrooms, in schools, then we might want to look at coming up with a procedure that's a little bit more manageable. Sure, there's training, but not the type of training and the type of sort of setting that can only be like Kennedy Krieger and, and you know, very sort of hospitalized institutions. So if I'm looking at problem behaviors happening everywhere and not every kid can get like $3,000 a day service, right? And we have solutions for them, but we do need to be able to at least say, I can turn problem behavior on and off. And I'm gonna give you a model that gives you that, that it's a little bit safer because you're not you know, trying to isolate these conditions that could be risky, hard to design and also implement safely. And again, also not trauma assumed, we gotta be mindful of that. And I can do this one, which matches the ecology. Again, it's, it's not as hard to do this in the, the school and home setting because it's kind of what happens every day. It's a very minor change we're doing to have an understanding and it gives you the effective treatment. And we have data showing that that's better than saying, hey, the vast majority of behavior analysts just don't do assessment and treatment because then what happens to those kids? Where are they going? I'm never obviously going to be one that says assessment and treatment should not be trauma-informed, but I don't necessarily see the connection that says one is necessarily more trauma-informed than the other. I've not necessarily seen the data that says that one is more dangerous than the other. So I, I if, if there are such data, I would love to see them and it will definitely change my thought process. But I, I've, um, with a, a fair degree of safety, I have been doing these assessments for many, many years and I can uh, count on a finger the number of times that a child has sustained an injury that required any medical attention. And I've definitely worked with some more severe cases. So um, I, I, I do just want to make sure that that is, is, is I, I guess, considered in this. Um, and, and the other piece of, of what you said, thank you for the, the prompt during our brief pause there, um, was about the dissemination piece of it and the notion of, you know, the, the kids that I'm saying I'd be concerned about trying to occasion problem behavior in their classroom or their homes, or I don't have, have say, padded equipment, for example. Um, again, I, I, I haven't necessarily seen the data that says for those same kids can be safely done because we're synthesizing contingencies together. Because ultimately, what we are doing is occasioning problem behavior. And the question is, is it safe to occasion problem behavior in their environment? I've, I've also not necessarily seen, like I, I can come up with a logical and rational explanation why problem behavior may turn off more quickly, but I can't uh, say I've necessarily seen the data showing that on a, a, a meaningful majority of cases or whatever it may be, that those effects actually happen. So I'm not saying that they don't, but I'm saying as a, a, a skeptical consumer of data and trying to be a good scientist, I would wanna see those data. That there are, are um, <laughs> I was rereading our, our paper on isolated versus synthesized contingencies, just like, okay, what did I say before? Um, and there was a, a portion of it where I was making the, discuss the distinction kind of in the proactive approaches of is it better to take this, you know, 
broadly proactive approach or are there um, is there a continued value given what we know on conducting assessments anyway, or do we just know enough? And I firmly believe that there's still some value in doing that, but I also recognize the need for data to kind of confirm my individual beliefs. So I, I, I try to be very um, cautious in the things that I, I, I believe and the things I'm generalizing from data versus that which has actually been clearly and reliably demonstrated. Yeah, there are, you know, of course, there's some data that um, sometimes gets a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, not everything can be included in every publication that you have. But I guess my comment about trauma assumed and trauma informed, uh, you know, there's some suggestions, I, I, I believe actually Beaver's um, paper even sort of concluded on this, or I've seen a, a lot of papers write about this as a limitation of their study, for example, that says, hey, um, there's a rise in you know, multiple control or undifferentiated analyses. And we think that's because you didn't um, do a functional analysis on just one topography of really serious problem behavior. In the context of, you know, so much research showing us that actually these are sort of response classes and and we've had, you know, extinction analyses and, and precursor analyses showing like they're the same. So this suggestion that in order for me to get a better, clear assessment, I should ignore all milder forms of behavior and only reinforce, for example, aggression or only reinforce self-injury, um, I do think is kind of a, 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 a not a trauma-assumed, not a, not a trauma-informed recommendation there because you're going to go through so many of these topographies um, and, and we do have a, a paper showing that, that you get a huge rise in the other mild behaviors before you get that serious one. So now you're, you're that, that whole scenario, that whole context is a traumatic context. Now, you know, I, I know that we're not discussing trauma assumed and trauma informed here, but that does speak to feasibility, practicality, social validity, and your ability to do this in a classroom or in a in a living room, right? So we do have to pay attention to all of those behaviors and how hard are you evoking one mild sort of behavior and turning it off and then safely going to your treatment? That will be adopted more easily than if you know you kind of have to deal with all these other whole response class being evoked and only responding to self-injury, which in fact is a suggestion made to to make you know assessments more clear. And it's it's such a a, a real example of the challenge of of synthesis together and and piecing individual things out is that there's a the the should we isolate or should we synthesize contingencies and should we target one class of behavior or one topography of behavior or should there be multiple or should we specifically target you know potential precursors you can have that discussion about whether or not precursors should be included as a separate element that's separate from whether they should be isolated or synthesized contingencies and and um you know the i use the the expression apparently people don't use it anymore and they look at me like i've got three heads about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Megan has heard this expression before. I say yes, I, I love that expression. <laughs> yeah, I say it to young people now, and they're like, "What? What are you throwing out your baby for?" I'm like, "No, you don't throw out the baby. You get rid of the bathwater." The idea because the bathwater. Everybody yeah. took the bath before the baby was the last one to take the bath. The water was so dark, so you didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There might be other reasons you're not throwing the baby out. <laughs> right. <laughs> fair. I didn't realize there were most people in the bath with the baby, but okay. See, I just learned something today. But the point being is that there's parts. There's elements. And, and trying to identify like, what are those elements that result in better assessment? 
and what are those elements that that are superfluous or, or or don't or weaken it is trying to figure out the individual components. So like, you know, I tend to agree with the approach that all analyses should be informed in some manner by by an you know an, an interview beforehand. But part of what I do with isolated contingencies is I try and rule in and rule out what was what came out of that interview, as opposed to you know holistically everything that came out of that interview was was relevant and important. Um, and and in the same regard, I, I can fully agree with you on that point. I think there's good reasons to to look for precursors. Um, one of the challenges with that, you know, I, I looking back at the early work on precursors, like the Rick Smiths group put out. Precursors can sometimes be really difficult to to identify. That not every everybody engages in precursors before they engage in in more severe problem behavior, and and sometimes people engage in you know what you might think of as a precursor in one context, and in more significant problem behavior in another context. And if you're only responding or only putting in conditions to evoke that precursor, you could miss that. So. Um, you know, yeah, the, and I the, just want to make sure, sorry, Jeff, I definitely want to clarify this, that I am not, I'm suggesting an open contingency, because you're right, it's very risky to be like, I'm only going to reinforce uh, precursors and not like self-injury. I'm saying reinforce the first thing that happens. And don't like, don't be like, oh, I, I'm only looking for, for X or Y, because yeah, the going just for the precursors is also a very dangerous um, thing to do. Yeah, and and one of the reasons for that is is if you are, uh, or, or I would think is if you're arranging conditions that evoke this response that uh, you would consider to be a precursor, you're like, okay, good news, we got it. We're reinforcing this precursor. The assumption is that if you didn't reinforce that, it would then evoke or occasion the more severe problem behavior and you're preventing that. What runs the risk is if you didn't actually arrange the conditions that would have led to the more severe problem behavior, you may in that case be focusing in on a, a lesser issue and then the big referring concern. If that's the case, again, this is hypothetical. I can't point to a single case where I've done that, but I also have, uh, I do tend to include at least initially more topographies in my operant class during an analysis, but I look at them each differently. I, I, I will analyze our data, you know, what did aggression look like? What did destruction look like? What did these other behaviors look like? To see if there does seem to be some kind of hierarchy or, or functional distinction. We have seen kids, for example, where you might see self-injury occurring predominantly under, you know, tests for automatic reinforcement, and you might see aggression more predominantly under uh, tests for escape, just as an example. This has been one of the, my most favorite conversations of that I've ever listened to professionally. Um, I want to be cognizant of time. Um, so I just want to throw it to both of you to kind of give a closing statement just real briefly, um, and then we will wrap up this debate. So Dr. G, do you want to give a few statements? Sure. I just wanted to thank you, first of all, Megan uh, and the team at Grand Behavior Services uh, for doing these um, podcasts and especially for doing this one and inviting me and, and Dr. Tiger. And I, I do want to also thank Jeff for giving us your time and having this conversation with me. I, I'm obviously a geek and could do this for hours. Um, Ultimately, I hope, uh, you know, the, the point of this uh, debate for me was to be able to, um, you know, 
help practitioners make some decisions with their practice, be able to defend their practice, uh, figure out what to do, because uh, many of you are, you know, have clients in front of you right now and you need to make a decision. And some of the questions maybe that Jeff and I pose that, that require, you know, years of research, you don't have time for it. You need to do something now. And so uh, what I want to leave you with is just a few points. One, um, you're a behavior analyst. I know we all want to sort of make sure that we are still behavior analysts, that, that we're doing science, uh, that we're not behavior modifiers, that we're, you know, doing what was asked of us in 1968. So what I want you to focus on is you need to have an understanding of behavior before you try and change it. That understanding means you're able to control behavior. You're able to account for variability in behavior. The bare minimum of what you need is not, uh, with respect, uh, the ability to say it's escape attention or tangible. The bare minimum is, can you turn it on and off? If you're able to do that, and you can do that and not have all this noise in your data and variability, then you do have an understanding. You have sufficient control and you can go into treatment. And then when you go into treatment, what you're looking for is beyond just you know, the initial steps of treatment. We really wanna have effective treatment that we can hand off to parents and teachers and say, we, this is a meaningful change we did. And both our outcomes and procedures are socially valid and in line with the values of society at this point. And so to, with that goal in mind, my argument or my sort of defense for my practice is that I believe function is important and it is in there if you've done an analysis that you could turn problem behavior on and off, but I believe it's not sufficient that in fact, having a more uh, holistic, complete context that truly can support, you know, the absence of problem behavior is what we need. That's where the power is for teaching the types of skills that you want to teach. And I guess my question still remains of what is the cost uh, of including those additional variables? I, I haven't had an answer to that. Uh, I do see some cost, sorry, Jeff, I do see some cost in potentially not including some uh, of those other variables and then having behavior percolating in what we consider to be reinforcement context and then, you know, living with that and, and addressing it later, either through punishment or other reinforcers we're adding in. So again, these contexts that I don't think we need to experience or expose our clients to don't need to exist. Um, and then I'm just going to do one final thing, which is maybe a debate uh, all in its own is I don't really think identifying an isolated function is as easy as we think. And there's a lot of alternative explanations uh, that we could look at uh, for perhaps some of those attempts uh, for us to isolate the functions. But that's not fair. I'm bringing up a new point. Um, it was just something, a thought for us to maybe consider for, for later. Thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate this. No worries, Dr. G, thank you so much. And thank you for summarizing everything. And, and maybe we'll have both of you back on, you know, for a reunion in a year. Um, but I do want to allow Dr. Tiger, I'd like you to also try to give a summary of, um, of the discussion and, and I will throw it to you to, um, to do that now. So thank you so much. Let me, let me just thank you again for bringing us together um, and giving us this forum to, to have this discussion. And then uh, Dr. G, I've enjoyed having it with you so much. Um, we've known each other for many years and I've, I've always enjoyed the, um, all, all the talks we've gotten to have at conferences over the years. Um, you're, you're somebody I respect tremendously. I, I think of you as an incredibly kind and thoughtful uh, person and scientist and an exceptional clinician. Um, so it's, uh, hopefully this is a, you know, example that these types of discussions can be had in a very thoughtful and, and professional manner. And I've enjoyed getting the chance to do so with you. Um, 
you, uh, yeah, I, I love it when the tongue just stops working in the middle of a sentence there. Yeah, um, I feel that. Yeah, so the, you know, kind of the, the big take-home points for everybody, for me, is I am never going to say that you're going to do wrong by your clients by teaching them a new request. That the more events, items, activities, and otherwise that your clients can, can independently indicate their interest in, you're doing right by them. You're giving them the greatest amount of um, autonomy in their life, the greatest amount of independence, and, and the, the greatest ability to access positive reinforcers and to you know, avoid things that they find less pleasant. And I, I think that's the pinnacle of what we can do for them. So um, the, the notion of if your client is struggling in some way that you're going to mistake, make a mistake by teaching them too much, I don't think anybody is, is going to um, try and make that claim. And I most certainly am not. Um, so I don't think there's any challenge or any problem when you're working with a client um, to try and teach them those types of skills. I think the hesitancy that I would offer to anybody is in line with our ethical code is to be respectful of our balance of competence and not just in terms of our training, but our, our ability and our setting that we're working in. And to be able to uh, have the not just confidence as a behavior analyst. In my experience, it is not the confidence side of the equation that many of us are lacking in, it's the humility side. And having the humility of saying, this is somewhat out of my scope of competence and I need some assistance on this. This is a bit more than I feel comfortable taking on. And so many of us do work in deserts in which we may be the only behavior analysts around. And one of Mashid's earlier comments was, well, if not you, who? And that's a really serious problem. So there needs to be many more behavior analysts out there. And there needs to be many more behavior analysts who specifically can work with our more severe and challenging cases. There do need to be options outside of the Kennedy Krieger Institute for those folks, because very few people can hop in the plane and get to Baltimore. So on the research side of things, I salute everybody who is trying to make um, both our assessment and our treatment procedures safer and more efficient and available via telehealth and everything that we can possibly do in order to put our, our technology in the hands of those that need it, I salute us for doing so. And for those of us who are on the ground working with kids, we're often faced with situations in which I need to do something and I need to do something now. And the answer is you should do the absolute best that you can, but you should also know where you might be in a position where you can make things worse. And when you reach a position where you might make things worse, the most appropriate thing to do is reach out to Mashid and ask for help because she is a phenomenal clinician and she will do right by you. <laughs> and, and that's really where the scope of competency is. And you know, I, I use a lot of metaphor and analogy to the medical profession is that we have our internists that we go to for most of our stuff. But every now and again, we get diagnosed with something that's beyond that internist. Sometimes we need to go to a pulmonologist or a cardiologist or God forbid, an oncologist, that there are places with more supplies and more resources and better facilities and better technology. And sometimes that does mean you have to, you know, they're specialists, so there's fewer of them. And I don't think we've necessarily been good at articulating yet 
where the line is between, you know, the equivalent of our internists that, that see most of our kids with disabilities and where the line is where we need a specialist. We as a field haven't really done that. So I, I just encourage everybody to, we all want to do best by our clients. And I think we all will have a tendency to take on things that we believe to be in the best interest of our clients, that if we're being more humble, that may not ultimately be. So I would uh, encourage everybody to, to be cautious in that regard. And I really want to end on a much more positive note because that is rather somber. <laughs> it's a preview for when we come back next time and <laughs> all of our agreements on what treatment should look like and how we make things better for those kids. Perfect. That's perfect. I think it was excellent, excellent advice. And I just want to extend the utmost gratitude to both of you, not only as an employee of GBS or even as a BCBA, but as a human, because I think that opening the door to more conversations on this topic is so crucial. And as Dr. G stated, moving forward through whatever evolution this time period may be is is going we're going to need to have these conversations more. So thank you for being here. Thank you for participating in this sometimes challenging conversation, but thank you so much for all of the work you do for our clients and for our field in general. And I just want to wrap up by saying that I, I love Dr. Tiger that you had said that this is going to be a poor debate because there's more that we agree on, right? We agree on the best interests of our clients, the highest quality of life for them, that we need to critically analyze everything that we do. And Dr. G, you said that the, um, the agreement about understanding why behavior happens, I think that those are all just so, such big takeaways. But I think my biggest takeaway is that so many of us employ binary thinking. That's one side is always right. And the other side is always wrong. And it's a profound lesson that even though both of you don't see eye to eye on this topic, this discussion has been, this discussion has been dignified and respectful throughout its entirety. So I just really appreciate this and everything beyond this, everything you do. And, um, and looking forward to our field kind of moving forward together and trying to figure out the best way to, to make all of the things we agree upon happen. So thanks. Thanks so much. This was awesome. This was a great <laughs> end to my week. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that you are as wowed as we were with everything discussed during this round. Stay tuned for a new ABA Ultimate Showdown episode coming out on a completely intermittent and unpredictable schedule. When we have great content, we will let you know. So follow us, subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at grambehaviorservices.com slash showdown, like or follow GBS on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, or sign up for our company's mailing list to be alerted when new awesome episodes are out. We also appreciate your thoughtful review on the platform you listen to us, and we ask you two things. First, be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember, everyone has a unique learning history that brought them to this moment. It will promote behavior analysis more effectively than all the lectures and presentations and podcasts. And two, go forth and deliver good ABA. Want to be a guest debater? Have a great topic you want us to debate? Send ideas and suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast on over to showdown at grambehavior.com. Oh, that second code word before I forget. Um, again, a note of thanks because your support for our podcast allows us to continue developing and creating quality, thought-provoking content. Thank you. Check out our other rounds to earn CE credits from your car, couch, run, or garden. We've got those elusive ethics and supervision credits, so let ABA Ultimate Showdown help you reach those magic 32 hours. 
Uh, to grab that 1.5 general continuing education hour, hop on over to our website. Again, gramhaviorservices.com slash showdown and enter the second code word, Eastern, as in Eastern time zone. Definition, lying toward the East. The NBA has an Eastern conference, E-A-S-T-E-R-N, Eastern. If the CEs are not active on the website, just give us some time and send us an email at showdown at grandbehavior.com. I'll send you a personalized answer and a fun random fact as a thank you for your patience while we work out some technical glitches on our end. This podcast has been brought to you by Graham Behavior Services. Graham Behavior Services provides quality, comprehensive, evidence-based therapy to individuals with any behavior challenges or an autism spectrum disorder to create effective behavior change in themselves while empowering their families to help them pursue productive, purposeful, and fulfilling lives.